I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. this series on the six queens podcast this week we are continuing our conversation about education last week we focused on Catherine of aragon's role in educating her daughter mary this week we are going to be talking about Catherine parr's role in educating her stepchildren edward and elizabeth and even though we're going to do another separate episode i think it's the next episode about stepmothers this is kind of going to be a tribute to Catherine Parr as kind of the most impactful stepmother that these children have because so much of her impact on the lives of these children had to do with her influence of their education, but also her encouragement of their education. As we'll see, she impacted, I think, all three of them. A lot of the time when people talk about Catherine Parr, as you just mentioned, they do focus on Elizabeth I. So it's quite nice that we're actually able to bring in not just Edward, but also Mary, because she's very much left out in the cold a lot of the time with this narrative especially surrounding education so just as a little bit of a refresher Catherine Parr married Henry in July 1543 so at the time Mary would have been 27 years old Elizabeth would have been nine years old and Edward would have been five years old it says a lot right there from the beginning about how she kind of set forth forging relationships with these kids. Mary is not a kid. She is 27 years old. So their relationship, I think, from the get-go was much more one of like friendship and respect rather than mother-child. And you wouldn't necessarily think that somebody of that age, you know, outside of their formative years would be receptive to having somebody come in and kind of like take that maternal role or try to, you know, influence their education in some way. But I think both of them were such clever women that that's what they bonded over, uh, over their love of learning. So one thing that I think is interesting that you see that Catherine, when she became queen, she had some grasp of Latin, but she really wanted to perfect her Latin because she was just, you know, she was a nerd. She liked to learn. And she set about doing a translation and she was translating kind of like an abridged version of the Gospels. And she enlisted Mary's help in it. Like they kind of bonded over this project and Mary translated for her or at least part of it, um, the Gospel of St. John. Even though Mary was like kind of, you know, very in the staunchly Catholic, like we do not put things in the vernacular camp. She was enlisted to do this translation and the two women really bonded over it. So right away you see Catherine swooping in and kind of carving out her niche as somebody who's interested in sharing educational experiences and yeah, all the like nerdy intellectual stuff. It's such a parental thing to do, I think, of trying to ingratiate yourself into a family or something like that. What are you going to do? You're going to find something to bond over. Oh, I heard you're very good at Latin, Mary. I'm not very good at it. Can you help me? I think it's such a clever way of doing it. And like you said, Catherine Parr loved to learn anyway. I think it's something very, very special. And it's touching for the 16th century in a way that we don't get to see very often, or especially women bonding over a love of learning so openly. There's reason to think that Mary kind of like regretted her role in it a little bit later down the line. Um, As we talked about In the God and War series, Catherine became a reform author. Um, She she wrote books that were translations of things or her own 
writing about her her beliefs and mary actually ended up banning those books once mary became queen so catherine kind of went on the the hit list of um of banned books so in retrospect some um differences between the two that were not quite settled but during their time together you can tell that they clearly had a lot of respect for each other and like you said they bonded over their love of learning which is super super sweet but because mary was you know an adult um you don't see as much of catherine taking on the sort of maternal guidance role as much with her you do see it though with the younger children um especially in the beginning with edward because catherine comes in at kind of the perfect time to influence edward's education when she becomes queen edward is five years old he's about to turn six and that's the age when a, a boy especially an heir to the throne his education is starting to be considered it's like when you get out of nursery school and people start to think okay what are we actually going to do so henry's kind of trying to put together a household for him he's trying to figure out who's going to tutor his son um, who's going to manage the education of his son and it's not to say that Catherine would have had a direct role in influencing this she wouldn't have been asked her opinion on it necessarily but you can see her influence creeping in just because she comes in at that perfect time. I think it circles back to something that we, we've spoken a lot about on this show and not so much this series. So I'd like to reintroduce the idea of soft power um, <laughs> um, that was often used by women and by queens. So like you said, it wasn't Catherine, you know, making a list of tutors and saying, okay, you're you're going to tutor Edward in Latin. You're going to tutor him in French and all of that. No, it's it's much more subtle than that. Think of it as a little bit more behind the scenes in terms of tutor selection rather than anything else. But so it was Henry who was really kind of, he had the idea of what he wanted his son, his heir to look like. And so right off the bat, when he's six years old, we're going to start this education. To that degree, he chooses a kind of head tutor for Edward, who is somebody who is very rooted in theology, but is also a classical scholar. He has experience at all the universities. He went to Eton. So it's like, you know, he went to all the schools, check, check, check. And his name was Dr. Richard Cox. On religion, it's interesting because he's one of these people who rides the middle of the road for as long as he possibly can. He's into reform but not so loudly as to discourage henry's patronage well richard cox is really the perfect person not just for edward but for henry like you're saying he he likes to sit in the middle of the path when it comes to the reformation to to me it makes the most sense for someone as theologically conflicted as henry yeah, once once Edward is king and Edward is really, really Protestant, as we'll mention in a moment, um, yeah, Cox Cox lets it all go. All all pretense is, is gone there. But for now, um, I think Henry purposefully chooses him because he's not too reformy. Henry doesn't like that. He's not necessarily, you know, pissing off Stephen Gardner, as a lot of the other ones do. And then though Catherine, um, as somebody who is interested in reformed and reformed education, can still have talks with him about like what they feel like the, the future king of England should be like. And you get the impression that it is kind of under Henry's radar to a certain extent. 
So Cox is not necessarily doing a lot of the actual teaching himself. I mean, I'm sure he did to some extent, but he's really more of the, think of it as like Cox was the principal of Edward's little schoolroom. He was the one who was directing everything and he was coming up with the curriculum. He starts to bring in other tutors who are specialists in certain areas who are going to be the actual people who are doing the hands-on teaching Interestingly, like they all need to have royal approval, obviously, and it's not to say again that Catherine is doing any of the actual approving, but she seems to have either gotten really, really lucky with who comes into Edward's schoolroom, or she did have some influence, like you say, that bit of soft power to make suggestions or to be like, oh, you know, I really like this guy. He'll be really great. If, you know, if I had to choose one, I would choose him. So Cox starts to bring in this circle of really well-educated men with reformed tendencies. Either they outwardly are reformers or they, like Cox, kind of keep it on the down low. So one of the most important people right off the bat that is brought in to tutor Edward is from this circle. His name is John Cheek. He just so happens to be the prodigy in England for ancient Greek He's being brought in because he is the best at his at, at what he does. And who better to teach the future king Greek than the person who in England is the best at it. But it's again, he's part of this reformed circle. And like we're very slowly kind of building this wall around Edward. They're all friends. They all know each other. They all study with each other. And in turn, they become close with Catherine Parr and they benefit from her patronage as queen. So it's like her making her own sympathies really well known. I like this. It's a case of Catherine using her influence to open a little crack in the door or a little crack in the window. And then you just see all of the reformers quietly climbing through. And I like the kind of exchange of ideas that's happening here because it's not just necessarily about who's teaching Edward. It's about ways for Catherine to meet people who share her interests because you get the idea that she probably was a reformer when she became queen, or at least she had interest in it, you know, judging just by, you know, her family was also interested in it. But it really begins to blossom during her queenship, as we talked about in that episode we did in the God and War series. She started doing translations. She started becoming more interested in educating herself about um, reformed theology. She published books. So it really starts to blossom. And I think you have to look at who she's beginning to surround herself with and who she's meeting because of her position. And in her position as Edward's stepmother, she's meeting his tutors. She's being influenced by their thinking. She sponsors them to some degree. Like they enjoy um, being favored by the Queen of England because of their influence as Edward's tutors. So you see this like whole little community building based on Edward's education. So even though she didn't have necessarily direct influence in choosing them, you definitely see her influence in keeping them around and keeping them in favor. And I think as well, it kind of demonstrates her her ability to almost plan for the future. Henry's not going to be about forever. What sort of king do you want to be? And maybe even without realizing it, allowing him a space to do that with and exposing him to those people. But like I said, it's almost like she's benefiting it from, from it as well and is learning along with him. But She definitely is. I mean, she's building her network. She's making 
connections and she's allowing herself to be inspired by and influenced by these these minds just as much as her stepson is so just interesting that they all kind of exist in this little this little pocket and then they they all come to court in waves and they're not necessarily being shy about their beliefs either like i think they're being somewhat careful because henry will notice otherwise but in the same way that Catherine parr is writing these texts kind of not so secretly that are very reformy all of the tutors are very well known reformers i mean they're part of this circle at cambridge which in itself is very well known so they're kind of getting some side eye from stephen gardner like he's like you know who's teaching our future king is it all these heretics like he's not thrilled with the choice of tutors and yet they continue um you know a lot of these guys stick around to finish edward's education even after he becomes king clearly they're doing something right and they are in favor and you have to kind of think that maybe Catherine had something to do with it once they all connected and figured out how tight they were. When is Gardner ever pleased? He's always grumpy or grumbling about something. Someone's always upset. <laughs> when Mary becomes queen, we're okay. We, we got a good, we got a, what, six years out of him and then that's it. <laughs> so from about the age of six, seven, Edward is being educated as the heir to the throne he's learning all of the higher subjects that the heir to the throne should learn um according to him um when he wrote his they call it his diary but he writes it as like a history of himself like a memoir almost and he specifically says that he was being taught tongues um so all the different languages the scripture philosophy and liberal sciences you can see then how with all those subjects, if he has reformed tutors, then he grows up to be probably one of the most Protestant, like straight Protestant people um, who have ever ruled England. Like he is. He's not sending any kind of mixed messages about what he believes no, in. <laughs> he, is, he is there. Again, I think we said this in the God and War series, really clever of these guys of, you know, if you want to forward your agenda you look to the next generation and you indoctrinate your pupil and uh you're good to go it almost worked if he had only uh survived longer than he did and you see Catherine's influence there too obviously because not only is she approving of his tutors not only is she also in her own way benefiting from their presence she as somebody interested in education is also taking on that role of being edward's chief supporter it's a nice side of their relationship because Edward is very clearly somebody who craves a maternal figure in the same way that um, his sister Elizabeth does, as we'll touch on in the next half of the episode. The letters that she and Edward exchange are are very touching and maternal. And I, she she's someone as well that has had a lot of practice in this role of being a stepmother uh, from her previous marriages. So it's something that she's quite used to and is very well adept at doing. And I think she just kind of steps, especially for the younger children and Edward and Elizabeth sort of steps into that quite naturally when they're exchanging letters, he refers to her as, as his mother. One of the sweetest letters that he writes to her, he actually explicitly tells Catherine that, her loving and tender letters do give me much comfort and encouragement to go forward 
because most of the time when they were exchanging letters, what they were talking about were his studies and she was giving them that kind of motherly encouragement. And he, it's something that he explicitly says that he appreciates. And yeah, and that's the letter where he addresses it to his most honorable and entirely beloved mother from her loving son. That su- is such a sweet letter. And Edward wasn't the only recipient of that either, because we'll talk about Elizabeth in the next half. She's arguably the, the biggest recipient of Catherine's attentions. But Mary, too, was getting a lot of really tender letters from Catherine that were really encouraging and maternal, not in the same way as it was with Edward, but getting close to it, or at least like supportive and loving. Uh, as I mentioned, Mary was involved in this translation project that Catherine was working on, and she was translating the Gospel of St. John. And she eventually became ill, so she couldn't continue with the project, and it was due for publication, so she said she had somebody else finish it for her, and wrote a letter to Catherine later where she said she almost felt bad taking credit for it because she didn't do all of it herself. She just felt bad that she wasn't as like kind of illustrious and wise as Catherine was making her out to seem. And Catherine wrote a really touching letter back where much in the same way that she kind of gave that encouragement to Edward to continue his studies because he's such a smart boy, she writes to the about 28-year-old Mary To which work you will, in my opinion, do a real injury if you refuse to let it go down to posterity under the auspices of your own name, since you have undertaken so much labor in accurately translating it for the great good of the public and would have undertaken still greater if the health of your body had permitted. So like she's saying, like, you you did it. You did such a good job. Why wouldn't you put it under your name? And it's like such a mom thing to say. I I really enjoy the tone of it. Come on now. Pull, pull yourself together. Why would we want to do that? When, uh, you've done it. Yeah, why would we want to do that when you're so smart and beautiful and successful? Like, that's <laughs> such a mom thing to say. It's just nice because it's probably some of the first kind of encouragement and maternal attention that Mary has gotten in any kind of capacity since she was taken away from the likes of her own mother and like Lady Margaret Pole. So I don't know. It's just like I read that letter and I was like, look at Catherine being such a mom to probably somebody who she has to walk the fine line with. Like, you know, Mary's an adult woman. She should be a mother herself at this point, you know. So Catherine can't necessarily mother her, but she can be a coach. She can be a supporter. She can be a friend. And that's really you you see her taking on that role with all of the children in different ways, which goes to show you that she really did have real affection for them. Like it's not one size fits all affection and it's not just the platitudes either it's like she genuinely believes that mary is intelligent and capable it, it, it that oozes out of this letter and the same for edward she's like interested in him as her son not just as the future king this is something that we'll definitely keep talking about in the second half but i just want to bring it up now since you know we just read the the letters linda porter in her biography of Catherine parr makes the really great and astute point that A lot of Catherine's influence as the mother of these children is because she's the kind of mediator figure between them and their father. Henry is a really distant figure for these children, especially the younger children. Uh, Mary probably interacted with him more because she was the adult. But the the children, children, you know, they grow up outside of court. They rarely see him. Um, Elizabeth sees him extremely rarely because he's not as interested in her. They want to impress him. 
they almost want to have to like justify their existence right um they're really into writing him these long letters of telling him how great he is and how honored they are to have been sired by him and like all this oily crap Catherine is the more approachable of them um she she assumes that maternal role as the person who is the one who you can actually talk to and you can write letters to her that are a lot more sincere than they would be to this this father that you've put on a pedestal and who you hardly know so edward's letters to catherine are more loving and gushy as much as they can be for this time period than the ones he writes to henry and likewise mary comes to think of Catherine more as an equal and a friend. So the letters they exchange are a lot nicer and more personal. And I just think that's like, if you're going to sum up Catherine's role in the lives of these children, it's to have a parent who they can actually approach and who they can actually talk to as a human being and not this like godly figure that they don't really know. She is that touch point in between them and, and Henry, which they've not always necessarily had in the form of other stepmothers. So it's nice that they do get that. When we think about Catherine Parr as a stepmother, I think the majority of the conversation focuses on her influence of Elizabeth I. Like we said, I think it's because she and Elizabeth had so much in common. I think because she fits so nicely into Elizabeth's story. And then because Elizabeth becomes such an important figure in English history that you you want to look for the people in her early life who influenced her and then like maybe influenced her later decisions. Yeah, it's definitely the relationship that had the last, the the longest impact. But also, I think because she spent a lot more time with Catherine and she benefited a lot more from the education that she had in mind, that Catherine had in mind for Elizabeth. I remember reading one quote, I think it was from David Starkey, where it was basically like Catherine couldn't have had a daughter more like her if she had given birth to her herself like it was just they were very naturally kind of united by fate like these two with such like interests and like personalities so elizabeth always had i think this predisposition to education like she was good at school she loved to learn she was especially good at learning languages i think like she had experience with at least 10 languages throughout her life like she was just naturally really good at it Um, There's a really funny quote from one of the king's men, Thomas Risley, who went and saw Elizabeth kind of like a progress check when she was about six years old. And he wrote back in his report that Elizabeth had the gravity of a 40 year old woman at the age of six. So she was like always very naturally kind of serious and um, an old soul, as we might say today. (laughs) So Elizabeth is already showing very early signs of being as clever as she ends up becoming she is nine years old when Catherine Parr becomes queen and she's already learning from Cat Ashley Catherine Ashley was her governess and Catherine would have been responsible for that 
early education um, and really introducing her to especially the languages. Um, so there is evidence that under Cat Ashley, Elizabeth had the basics of French, Dutch, Italian, and Spanish. By the time she was nine, she was already incredibly smart. Like Catherine isn't working with, you know, this rough child. Um, so I think they naturally bond because Catherine sees in Elizabeth somebody who wants to learn but maybe doesn't have all of the resources. Catherine really seems to want to encourage and reward this child for being so naturally precocious. It's interesting to me though that you because I think when you think of royal children even from the 16th century point of view you think of them having education at their fingertips almost and that they were kind of surrounded by people tutoring them and things like that so the idea of her lacking in resources and people that I suppose could keep up with her and she could learn from is such an interesting kind of thought and for Catherine to be able to spot that and to guide Elizabeth and you know get her the right people to educate her is so important well because we have to remember that the education of princesses was much different so again like we talked about last week mary was educated as kind of the ideal renaissance princess and then her education took a little bit of a shift once Catherine thought oh maybe my daughter actually has a shot of being queen and she should be ready for that elizabeth was not in that position elizabeth was very much a underdog um she was just kind of quietly living out her life and not to say that henry totally ignored her like she she came to court for certain occasions but he wasn't as interested in her as he was edward for obvious reasons like you said, Elizabeth was not necessarily lacking for an education because they still wanted her to be an educated Renaissance woman and, you know, a, an example of the Tudor dynasty. But she didn't have the same necessarily like quality of education as her brother. She didn't have access to people who could keep up with her intellectually. She should have been in Edward's schoolroom where all of his tutors were. And that's where Catherine comes in, because Catherine seems to orchestrate, if not directly influence, Elizabeth spending more time in Edward's household and benefiting from Edward's education. Because suddenly we see a lot of those tutors that came into Edward's schoolroom, uh, you know, all the uh, reformed Cambridge guys, they're suddenly being assigned to Elizabeth as well. It's almost like the people who need more experience, um, you know, the younger uh, scholars, the younger tutors are being assigned to work with Elizabeth as kind of practice almost for Edward. There's no evidence necessarily that Catherine had anything to do with this directly, like she wasn't making the appointments, but she was definitely encouraging them. And she might have been, like you said, kind of behind the scenes, influencing it to some extent. Elizabeth gets a new Greek tutor who's part of this circle named William Grindle. She eventually is taught by Roger Ashham, who began as one of Edward's tutors. So you can see how the two households are kind of blending a little bit because Catherine was like, this girl needs somebody more capable. <laughs> very, uh, very Hermione Granger. <laughs> um, with, with the tutors that she has as well, um, to draw a direct parallel with Edward 
is you can see the religious influence as well and that later impact on her. She's less intense. Uh, Elizabeth is a bit less intense than Edward in her reformist beliefs, but that they're, they're still there. And I think that owes a lot to, again, the, the similar ex- sort of exposure that she had with those tutors. And I think as well with the kind of lasting relationship she had with Catherine Parr, even after Henry's death. It definitely makes more sense to me that Catherine had more of an impact on Elizabeth just because of the whole gender thing. Um, Like we said, Edward, as the heir to the throne, had a very kind of prescriptive education. Henry was in charge of really setting the course for it in like shaping his own heir. So Catherine wouldn't have been able to have that direct influence on Edward. She could encourage him, you know, from the bleachers, but she couldn't necessarily step in directly because it's not within her sphere. Whereas Elizabeth, as both, you know, not the heir to the throne, she's far down the ladder, and a a woman, a princess, um, she also had experience with it because her stepdaughter from her previous marriage, Margaret Neville, she managed her education. So it was something that was far more, um, I think, accessible because she and Elizabeth ended up having so much in common and Elizabeth was really responding well to this influence. Like, I don't know, they, they exchange books, for example. You can see them reading the same kinds of texts. You can see Elizabeth being really inspired by Catherine's own journey in education, you know, kind of perfecting her Latin, um, reading more about theology and forming her own beliefs. So it just, I don't know, to me, it's much more natural for these two to influence each other and for Catherine to influence directly Elizabeth than it was for Edward because of his gender and then Mary because of her age. She was the right child at the right time in the right place that needed a stepmother. (laughs) Definitely. Throughout her life, you see her really looking for the strong female relationships. And this is really one of the first ones in her life. Uh, Kat Ashley being the other one who, funny enough, you know, they sent her around education. And just like we said with Edward and Mary, Catherine served as the much more approachable figure for Elizabeth. She was kind of that mediator between Elizabeth and her father. Elizabeth, I think, especially knew that she walked a fine line with Henry because of who she was and the circumstances of her birth, who her mother is. She's so far down the line. I think she definitely, there's a bigger barrier between her and Henry. And Catherine really is the stepping stone between them. And one of the nicest things that you see in their relationship is I think throughout her life, Elizabeth has this need to be perfect, to legitimize herself to prove that she is worthy of whatever kind of things she's getting of whatever kind of reverence you're showing to her she's not like that as much with Catherine she makes mistakes with Catherine she's showing off her learning like they exchange letters in other languages her earliest surviving letter from when she was 10 years old is a letter to Catherine in Italian where she makes several mistakes Like, she's clearly showing off the fact that she's learning Italian and she's very good at Italian, but there are mistakes in it. And it's like, because she feels comfortable showing Catherine that she's not perfect. So I think that even though we get a small window into that vulnerability, it shows a level of trust that Elizabeth could and was willing to give someone. Because like you said, I think a a bit like Edward was taught to revere Jane's memory Um, Elizabeth was taught that Anne was executed because 
her being an adulterer and all of these other horrible things that you could possibly say about her. So knowing full well that her position was subject to the whim of the king, but then also having a safe place with Catherine. And Elizabeth so clearly needing the praise and needing the positive attention from a parental figure. I think this is best exemplified in the New Year's gifts. Um, Elizabeth is really famous for these. They're gorgeous. Um, It's hard to believe that she made them when she was like 11 and 12 years old. For her New Year's gifts to her parents for two years, she decided to translate works and then make them into books and like even embroider the covers. We talked about this, I think, in other episodes and like in the New Year's special. The first one she does is for Catherine, actually. Um, It's this really beautiful book with Catherine's initials, KP, embroidered on the cover. So, you know, we check that box for showing off my embroidery skills. And then the translation is of a reformed work that I know we've talked about before, The Mirror of the Sinful Soul by Marguerite de Navarre. So it's a work that I think both of them would have had in common. Like if Catherine hadn't necessarily recommended it to Elizabeth, then they both were reading it and probably discussing it because it's a really influential work by a woman. And then it's translated. Um, So Elizabeth makes the translation from French into English. And once again, there are imperfections in it. But uh, Elizabeth clearly writes it as like a, I want to make something pretty for you, but also I want to show off how proud you should be of me. You made this investment in me. Look, it's paying off. She's taking her education seriously and that she's enjoying it. I think that's, I think she's also showing her love of learning and her enjoyment of learning as well. I think it's a very sweet moment that we we get here. The dedication letter of the translation of Mirror of the Sinful Soul is actually super sweet. Like there are a couple letters that exist between Elizabeth and Catherine Parr, but this one really is the one that shows just how much Elizabeth loved and revered Catherine. So not only does she say that Catherine is like an excellent wit and she appreciates the godly learning that Catherine has brought into her life, once again, we see that level of trust being brought in because Elizabeth explicitly says kind of, it's the the real sign of her age, right? Like you don't necessarily believe that she's 10 or 11 years old until you read this bit. She says there might be mistakes in the work, like it might not be a perfect translation. So In the meanwhile, no other but your highness only shall read it, lest my faults be known to many. And that just to me shows like what a loving gift it is. It's not just showing off. It's like this very personal thing between them. And I think it contrasts very much then with what she she then gives Henry. For New Year 1546, Elizabeth makes a similar work, but this time it's for her father. And interestingly, it's a translation of Catherine Parr's own work, Prayers and Meditations. So we're still celebrating Catherine. She's still here and she's she's involved. It's almost like she upped her game. Like Catherine's was the practiced gift. And it was a much more personal statement of that maternal love that she Elizabeth was feeling. But with Henry, it's much more of a showing off and like we said justifying her own existence so it's a translation of Catherine Parr's work into Latin French and Italian and once again she embroiders the cover um, and puts you know Henry's insignia on it 
this time there's no gushy sort of don't worry, like there might be a couple of mistakes here sorry if there are they've all gone it's like she spent the last year practicing you know she's showing her deference to him and showing her obedience to him things you have to say to him and a clinical set of like deferences you have to to pay to the king and it's almost like anyone could have written it and you know she could just scribble her name at the end the emotion in it's gone it's buttering up the king for the sake of buttering up the king like i think she calls him like my most excellent and matchless father and it's like it's all of these just empty platitudes and you don't see anything of the feeling that you see and this is the same not just for elizabeth with for all of the kids you don't see the same personal fawning that you see with the kids and Catherine. Like these kids are excessively complimenting Catherine. And to some extent they are doing it politically because Catherine is still the queen of England, but it's because they, they want to be almost like the things that they're telling her are very specific to her. Like you said with Henry, it could be anybody. It could be addressed to any King from any of his subjects. And we wouldn't really be able to tell Whereas you can tell these kids know Catherine. They are complimenting her on things that they actually do admire her for. And with Henry, it's just, oh, most gracious prince and kind father, as Cicero once wrote, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's just so empty. And I think that's where we see the most marked difference with how Catherine interacted with these kids. And there's another letter that Elizabeth writes to Catherine. It's the one that is is in Italian where she implies that she's grateful to Catherine for like mentioning her in Henry's presence or like writing letters to Henry praising her work. So it's evidence that Catherine was encouraging Henry to be more interested in his children and to be proud. And by all accounts, he was, he knew just how clever Elizabeth was. He encouraged it, he celebrated it or else she wouldn't be giving him this new year's gift at all. Right. So I think Catherine's influence there too. Like she, she knew that she was going to be the stepping stone between Elizabeth and her father. And so she really embraced it. She really took on that role and apparently really successfully, because like we said, uh, Elizabeth was revered by many, including Henry for just how intelligent she was. And then got to reap the benefits of her brother's education without any kind of um, pushback from anybody and that's really what shaped her is that access to the education thanks to somebody noticing her noticing how clever she was and how she needed the people around her to really stimulate her it's kind of interesting to think potentially how her queenship may have been different had she not had someone notice her you may not have ended up with someone so confident in themselves and in the decisions that they were making because they didn't have that education to back it up. So yeah, segueing on to the topic of our next episode, which is just stepmothers in general, Catherine, as has been noted many, many times, really does kind of win the award for of our six queens. She was the one who I think most embraced this role of becoming friendly, becoming motherly with these children. Both Edward and Elizabeth referred to Catherine as their mother. Mary clearly respected her as a friend, um, a, a family member. Like they talked about how they loved each other. So certainly a family member. And it really revolved around 
their education. Um, Catherine shaping Edward and Elizabeth's education. Catherine finding common ground with Mary through their education. So that's why we really wanted to dedicate this whole episode to her, kind of in preparation then for next week, um, the stepmother episode. Not that we're using this as a pass to like not mention Catherine at all in the next episode, but just she deserved a whole episode in of herself. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. In the next episode, Callie and I will discuss the role of stepmothers. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating and a review. Long live Queens!